Welcome to episode 28 in the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Today we'll start with an issue that is not our main topic, but it is something we would like to acknowledge and highlight. That is, the protests around the world on Saturday, July 23rd, in support of the Dutch farmers' protest against restrictions being brought in by their government to limit the use of fertilizer, lowering it by something like 30%. The move will severely reduce food production in that tiny country, which happens to be the world's second-largest food exporter. The move will drive many farmers out of business. The protests around the world are not only for the Dutch. In Canada, we now know the Trudeau government has brought in similar restrictions, but it wasn't really on anyone's radar until the Dutch farmers started protesting, and the counter-signals Key and Bexty started reporting on it. So we all owe a debt of gratitude to these Dutch farmers, and to Kean for bringing this issue to the attention of the good people around the globe, giving everyone a fighting chance to thwart these Malthusian machinations. The powers that be are rationing fertilizer to fight climate change, they say. But they must know the results of their actions will be higher food costs for everyone, shortages, and potentially famine. So, to start, I'm going to ask John, who speaks Dutch, to say a few words to the farmers of the Netherlands in their language, and then translate himself into English for our benefit. John? Ik wens de boeren in Nederland en alle vrijheidsstrijders het allerbeste in het bereik van hun doelen. I wish the Dutch farmers and all freedom fighters in the Netherlands uh, the very best that they may achieve their goals. I'll, I'll add to that that um, I subscribe to a Dutch newspaper, NRC Handelsblad, which is the fourth largest paper in the country. And every 24 hours, you get an email and it's got the six top headlines of the major news stories. And day after day after day after day, the farmers protests in the Netherlands does not make the top six news items, which I find kind of bizarre and puzzling. I have not cross-referenced that with the other Dutch papers, uh, the one whose emails I get, like I said, it's the fourth largest in the country. Uh, but I would not be surprised if there is a mainstream media boycott of what is actually going on in the same way that the uh, Canadian media did not report fairly or accurately on what was happening with the peaceful truckers protests in Ottawa back in February. Actually, just about every protest, if you recall, uh, you, you talked about them not covering the Calgary protests as well. So, yes, this must mean it's a big thing if the media is ignoring it. <laughs> so I think there's a few stories in Countersignal about that as well. So we'll highlight that. Well, I think that's about all we can say on that topic at the moment because the protests are going. It may be a topic that we revisit in the future. But for now, we're going to stay on the international beat and we're going to look at a story that appeared in the Daily Mail recently under the headline, New Zealand COVID deaths soar to record high as Omicron wreaks havoc. Scientists claim nation is vulnerable because it spent too long under hermit China-style eradication strategy. I think that is a long way of saying lockdowns. What do you say, John? 
It is a long way of saying lockdowns. From the same uh, Daily Mail story, it's the United Kingdom newspaper with the highest circulation. It fairly recently edged out the Sun. Uh, the Sun had been the uh, the biggest, but now it's the Daily Mail. It's been around since 1896, and it's mainstream media uh, described as right of center. In this same article, there's a summary of COVID curbs introduced by New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And so some of these, and I'm not going to read all of them, but starting in March of 2020, of course, in, put into a state of terror by Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, who told us that COVID would be like the Spanish flu of 1918. And of course, the big lie is often more effective in mesmerizing people than the small lie. So New Zealand, like the rest of the world, uh, all non-residents and citizens were barred from entering the country. So there was an international border ban. So they actually went further, unlike Canada, which at the end of March was still accepting flights from China and everywhere else with no screening for anybody getting off of the plane. At the end of March, uh, even when provinces were locking down, the federal government was just allowing unlimited travel into Canada. In any event, New Zealand became like a hermit kingdom. Nationwide lockdowns uh, imposed March 25th. This is after uh, the two weeks to flatten the curve. And even in August and September of 2020, uh, two months of lockdowns imposed on Auckland's 1.7 million residents. Bear in mind, the flu season there is opposite uh, because their winter is when we have our summer and, and, and vice versa. Uh, In 2021, February, March, Auckland gets another lockdown. Uh, August of 2021, uh, level four lockdown measures for all of New Zealand. October 2021, vaccine passports. The unvaccinated uh, cannot enter businesses, gyms, and barbers. So that's like what Jason Kenney did in Alberta and every other premier uh, in Canada. December 2021, the length of stay for people in Jail is increased to 10 days. Oh, I'm sorry, not jail. No, 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 no. Managed isolation and quarantine facilities. Yes, not a jail. Uh, So increased to 10 days. Uh, You know, ignoring the fact, I mean, yes, maybe the jail conditions are harsher, but if you're denied your freedom, you're denied your freedom. Even being forced to quarantine at home is analogous to prison sentence that's imposed on some offenders. They have to be under house arrest and they get the ankle bracelet and they they cannot leave their house. That is a, a serious violation of your liberty. I would venture a guess that these managed isolation and quarantine facilities were not as harsh as a prison, but fundamentally it's a deprivation of your liberty. Uh, 2022, uh, sporting fixtures, uh, major events capped at 100 people uh, under COVID red alert measures 2022. Uh, in January, uh, the Prime Minister Ardern announces that she's canceled her own wedding after nine new Omicron cases were recorded. Well, I guess, you know, kudos to her for taking it seriously, unlike some politicians that, you know, have lunch at the Sky Palace while jailing pastors. But now here we are, fast forward to July of 2022. And the government's bringing back masks and tests and uh, (laughs) promoting booster shots because deaths are up. And it's interesting because the uh, comparing the deaths in the United States and the United Kingdom with the deaths in New Zealand, the New Zealand deaths are now 
higher, whereas the United States and United Kingdom, which had less severe lockdowns, uh, they now have lower deaths than New Zealand. Which I think bears the situation somewhat in Sweden. Remember, Sweden initially had a higher death rate and then it plummeted. Uh, Sweden, of course, famously had no restrictions at all. So they had a higher death rate initially, and that was cited by people like uh, Alberta's public health officer saying, oh, look how terrible they were doing. But then, of course, because of this strategy, their deaths plummeted, while ours kind of stayed the same. So it seems to be something of a postponing of the inevitable at any rate. Yeah, that is exactly what Professor Robert Dingwall states in this Daily Mail article. Uh, Professor Dingwall is a sociologist at Nottingham Trent University and a former government advisor. And he says, quote, New Zealand was able to prevent early waves of infection by rigid border controls while other countries developed and tested vaccines. However, in the end, New Zealand has been unable to escape the fundamentals of COVID, that the risk of death is strongly related to age, that vaccination mitigates but does not prevent infection and that the way out of the pandemic lies through population immunity. New Zealand's policies may have displaced some deaths into other countries that develop vaccines, but we're really only delaying the inevitable deaths among their own population at a considerable cost to the economy. So in other words, the number of people who are going to die of COVID are the number of people who are going to die of COVID and lockdowns New Zealand is demonstrating uh, haven't worked. It's still well. Yeah, not only that. What they what you said right at the end there that you know there's an economic cost. Well, that's going to lead to other devastation as well. And that's what I think we have to understand and start getting a tally on. We've got suicides. We've got businesses being bankrupted in Canada. Here, of course, we've got the healthcare system now in disarray all over the country. Various provinces screaming they don't have enough money after you know shutting down their economies pretty much. Uh, you know, so you've got inflation revenue. after debt, and inflation hurts everybody rich and poor, the, yeah. the drug overdoses. And I, if, if the New Zealand government is like other governments in the world, it is not making much of an effort to track seriously all of the lockdown harms. There is not a single government in Canada, federal, provincial, uh, municipal, territorial, what have you, not a single government in Canada is making a serious concerted effort to really get comprehensive facts on all of the lockdown harms what they are, and what the extent of the harm is. Governments are turning a blind eye to that. Now, I'm speculating here. Maybe New Zealand is actually taking a hard, serious, sincere, you know, principled look at, at lockdown harms. I would be surprised if they were, uh, because if these are the same people that are you know, imposing lockdowns with a fanatical zeal, then they're not really thinking about the facts. They're just uh, you know, people who drank the Kool-Aid that was served by Neil Ferguson in March of 2020 when he said that COVID would be like the Spanish flu of 1918, you know, killing tens of millions of people. And of course, that's been utterly debunked and discredited. And I see that they're giving masks away in New Zealand. It says free mask policy. So I guess... Uh they figure they got to give those away because actually there's a new study out. Uh, I don't have the story right in front of me, but I think it was the University of Southern California and the University of California basically saying, you know, masks are ineffectual. They looked at various classrooms, 
various schools around the country. You know, some areas had mask policies, others had none. And comparing the two, the infection rate was pretty much the same. The mask did not appear to have any effect whatsoever. I remember the the quote at the end of the story, because they quoted uh, Michael Yeadon, Dr. Michael Yeadon, who's been uh, in the news quite a bit. Uh, He's the former head of Pfizer research. He said masks are basically like a splash guard, and that's it. So, well, put the put the links uh, put the links to the to those studies with with the podcast, and people can look at those yeah, studies. Sure. That, that'd be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Indeed, uh, yeah, because I know the question came up actually in the trial, not the Justice Center trial, but I know that the I think the teachers union or the NDP or somebody was questioning the public health officer in a court case regarding the taking off of the mask policy for school kids. And they were saying, what what science were you using for that? And I don't recall the reply at the time because, uh, you know, the story that I read was just uh, a questioning of it. But now I think there's probably more ammunition uh, for the public health officer for removing that mandate. At any rate, okay, so that's great. Uh, Well, how can I say that's great? That's terrible. We just went through two years of lockdowns and – it appears they they do more harm than good. Well, that's not great at all. But I mean, what we're going to move on now to a little bit of a happier story. And this happened here in Alberta. This is the appeal of Art Pawlowski. Uh, he actually was granted that appeal, and so uh, this was in a. Well, I'll let you describe it, John. You uh, you can take it away. You're the legal talking guy or the law talking guy. I have just finished reading the. Alberta Court of Appeal decision rendered on July the 22nd. Uh, Citation is Alberta Health Services v. Pavlovsky. And I'm pronouncing that the Polish way. It's P-A-W-L-O-W-S-K-I. But in Polish, uh, I'm told the W is a V. So it's Pavlovsky Pavlovsky or Palowski. I think Palowski is how a lot of Canadians pronounce it. Art Palowski is a controversial... Uh, Calgary pastor. He has been in court a lot in the last, uh, not just the last two or three years over lockdowns. He has a very colorful history. He's uh, one of these people that you might describe as unreasonable. And that can be taken as a compliment because it's been said that reasonable people conform to the world and they go along to get along or they get along to go along, whatever. Whereas unreasonable people are the ones who change the world because they're not going to conform and they're going to force the world to change even a little bit to conform to them. So uh, this is uh, art. If he's listening to this, I think we'll, we'll take it as a compliment when I say that he's unreasonable and being unreasonable can be uh, a very good thing. If it means uh, standing up for rights and freedoms and fighting against injustice. By way of introduction, I just remind you that he was mentioned in our Theo Fleury podcast, where Theo talked about loving the video of him yelling, get out of here, Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fleury did a great imitation, actually, for us. I, anyway. I had an interesting uh, online debate with Leisha Corbella, who has now retired from the Calgary Herald, but she wrote a column uh, arguing that art... Uh, Palowski was bringing dishonor to the name of Jesus by being so rude to the uh, nice, caring, and sharing Alberta Health 
officers who came to his church with good intentions to save lives and that he very rudely called them a bunch of Nazis and told them to get out of his church. And I, I wrote like 20 years ago when mainstream media actually believed in, in a diversity of opinions. Um, I used to write into the Calgary Herald from time to time and say, Hey, you had your columnist so-and-so put out, you know, this viewpoint. Are you interested in a rebuttal column? And they would say, yes. And I could write a 700 word column rebutting something that uh, a Calgary Herald uh, columnist had written. And they used to believe in viewpoint diversity. So here I I went through the motions and I wrote to the Calgary Herald and I said, would you allow me to do a rebuttal to Leisha Corbella's column? And very predictably, they got back to me and said, no. So I approached the Western (laughs) Standard and I said, would the Western Standard run a rebuttal to uh, Leisha Corbella's Calgary Herald column? And the Western Standard said, yes. (laughs) And I went nice. through and I, I don't I don't have it in front of me, but I, I said, you know, that if you are taking away rights and freedoms of people, then, you know, governments always have a, a good pretext, right? If they're going to take away your rights and freedoms as to protect you from the communists or protect you from the Nazis or protect you from the Jews or protect you from the virus or protect you from the Muslims or protect you from the terrorists or whatever, there's always a pretext uh, that, that's being offered. So anyway, if you look at the Western Standard online, you can see my rebuttal to uh, Leisha Krabel, who is a friend, who is a very good lady. I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for her. Anyway, that's just on your mention. <laughs> now, back to the ruling. That's what so we are talking about here. So on May the 6th, Alberta Health, May the 6th, 2021, Alberta Health Services went to court ex parte meaning without notice to the other side, and they obtained an injunction against Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, Whistle Stop Cafe, and miscellaneous John Doe's and Jane Doe's. This ex party means that they provided no notice to Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, or Whistle Stop. And this is a questionable tactic. I guess it was condoned by the court. Uh, normally, there, there's a there's an important legal principle called audi alterum partum, which is to hear the other side. And normally, the uh, ex parte application is reserved for very unusual circumstances where if you fear that giving notice to the other side, they're going to um, erupt or explode and cause massive damage. I don't think there's any basis for an ex parte application here. I think the Alberta Health Services um, should have just had a normal court application where you serve notice on the other side and they can show up in court and and, uh, say their piece. Examples of legitimate ex parte applications would be a restraining order against an individual. Uh, You might not want to give them notice of a court application. You might just want to, if somebody's threatening you and you need that protection. You might go to court ex parte and get an injunction, a restraining order against an individual. The other example would be if a landlord has some really bad tenants that are already causing a lot of damage to the place. And if he gives them notice of a court application, they might get upset and completely trash the place even worse and cause tens of thousands of dollars of damages and and leave. So you might get an ex parte application in, in that situation. In any event, the wording of this ex parte application is important because the Alberta Court of Appeal set aside the lower court ruling against the Palowskis. So this order 
obtained by Alberta Health Services against Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, and Whistlestop, says that it, the injunction applies to the named individual respondents, so those are the ones I just mentioned, and any other person acting under their instructions or in concert with them or independently to like effect and with notice of this order. And then it goes on to identify the prohibited conduct, uh, shall be restrained anywhere in Alberta from organizing an in-person gathering, including requesting, inciting, or inviting others to attend an illegal public gathering, promoting an illegal public gathering via social media or otherwise, attending an illegal public gathering or any nature in a public place or a private place with each having the same meaning as given to them in the Public Health Act. Now, what's interesting here is that this appeared to apply to everybody in Alberta uh, because of that clause uh, or independently to like effect, right? So it says this, and by just for background information, an injunction elevates, it's a, it's an extra tool for law enforcement where ordinary law enforcement is not going to work. So let's say a logging company has gone through all the regulatory hoops and hurdles Right, they've gotten all their permits. They've filled out all the paperwork, and they are legally logging uh, a certain piece of forest. And now the protesters come up who are against the logging. Now, ordinary law enforcement, you get a ticket for trespassing, but you can come back the same day and get another ticket for trespassing and another ticket for trespassing. And so, ordinary law enforcement, if you get a huge number of protests, uh, protesters against legal logging, ordinary law enforcement under the relevant provincial trespassing legislation is not good enough. Then the logging company might go to court and say, we want an injunction. We want a court order specifically saying that uh, you're not allowed to block or obstruct or trespass on this territory that we have legal rights to log. And then the court, if it grants that it then ups the ante for law enforcement. So now if you go there and protest, you don't just get a ticket for trespassing to which you can plead not guilty and force a trial, which will be held, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months down the road and whatever. It's like, no, you're now, if the police catch you protesting, you're in violation of a court order, which means that you can be arrested immediately, tossed in jail immediately and stay in jail until you be appear before a judge and the judge can, you know, release you from jail uh, or and he can impose a fine, or he can jail you longer because you're in contempt of court. So that's what Alberta Health Services did against Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, and Whistlestop. Uh, ultimately, under the instructions of Jason Kenney, Jason Kenney likes to say, well, you know, this was all beyond my control because, uh, you know, prosecutors are going to do what they're going to do. Police are going to do what they're going to do. Judges are going to issue the rulings that they're going to issue. And the political branch of government should not interfere with the legal process. So I wash my hands of it. It's like, well, yeah, partially true in that, yes, that, you know, the premier should not be talking to police and crown prosecutors and judges and telling them what to do and what not to do. That's true. However, as Jason Kenney's government, Alberta Health Services went into court to get this court injunction, which changed the entire dynamic of law enforcement away from simply getting a ticket for violating a health order to which you could plead not guilty. And you could also challenge the validity of the ticket in court as being an unjustified violation of your charter rights and freedoms. And in court, you could subpoena the chief medical officer to come and testify and you could cross-examine her and you can actually attack the constitutional validity of the law 
when you're charged with breaking that law. So toss all that out the window. Now you get immediate enforcement where if you violate the health order, then you are immediately arrested and jailed and brought before a judge for being in contempt of court. But this thing is very specific, and they try to apply it to the whole province, which is basically they go to this, they get a secret hearing, and then they treat it like it's the Emergencies Act. You know, I mean, that seems rather unfair, and I think the appeals court kind of saw it that way too. I'm not sure. So I'll let you interpret. So, so back to the order. So the, the named individual respondents are Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, and Whistlestop. And so uh, they are expressly prohibited from organizing, promoting, or attending an illegal public gathering, uh, illegal public gathering being defined as, you know, contrary to the public health orders. Now, one interesting thing is that the Justice Center went to court and about a week later on May the 13th, we got the words uh, independently or like effect taken out. We did that because we saw that Art Pawlowski got arrested about three days after this injunction was passed. And we were concerned that the way it was, it was worded so broadly that, that every, anybody in Alberta, like a, you know, a grandmother and grandparents and extended family gathering together at a picnic table in a public park, they could be immediately arrested and jailed uh, for being in contempt of court because this was worded so broadly. So, uh, we retained counsel and our lawyer sought a change to the injunction to which Alberta Health Services actually consented. And we asked for and received the removal of the words or independently to like effect so that it would narrow the scope down to only Chris Scott and Glenn Carrot and Whistlestop, who had their own lawyer, Chad Williamson. Uh, but we went in there and we got the order changed on May the 13th to say that uh, that the order applies to the named individual respondents and any other person acting under their instructions or in concert with them and with notice of the order. So not, and it took out the words, or independently to like effect. Now, what's really interesting with this Alberta Court of Appeals ruling is that even with the words, or independently to like effect, it still didn't apply to the Pulowskis. And so they were wrongfully arrested and wrongfully detained uh, when they were arrested pursuant to this order. So the Alberta Court of Appeal points to the requirement of clarity to ensure that a party will not be found in contempt where an order is unclear. An order may be found to be unclear if, for example, it is missing an essential detail about where, when, or to whom it applies. If it incorporates overly broad language, or if external circumstances have obscured its meaning. So the court is taking note of the fact that it, an injunction is a very, very serious r remedy. It's not some casual, trivial, meaningless thing, right? You, you move away from giving somebody a ticket for speeding, which to which they can plead not guilty and they can keep on driving to, you know, conceivably the government could go to court and obtain uh, a court injunction against an individual who's repeatedly speeding and, that the next time they're caught, they're found to be in contempt of court, right? So that's, it's a whole new level of law enforcement. So the court notice uh, takes note of that. And it goes on to say, the terms of injunctions restraining members of the public from interfering with logging operations 
had been amended to make them clearer and fairer by removing legal language, which some members of the public might not have understood and replacing it with more precise language specifying what was prohibited. And here they are referring to a British Columbia case, Macmillan Blodell Logging Company uh, versus Simpson. So the court uh, goes on to reiterate again and again the importance of precise language and uh, says that parties cannot be expected to comply with uncertain or imprecise obligations where a breach is punishable in a quasi-criminal procedure. And it is quasi-criminal when you're in contempt of court. Right? It's part partway criminal. As all elements of contempt must be established beyond a reasonable doubt, we conclude that the injunction here was not sufficiently clear and unambiguous when it referred to other parties acting independently to like effect, so as to apply to the uh, Palowskis. The contempt finding against the Palowskis must therefore be set aside. (laughs) Now we get to the really fun part. The fines that have been paid by the Palowskis, this is Art and and his brother, are to be reimbursed. The chamber's judge, that's the lower court judge, uh, who's not mentioned by name anywhere in the judgment, and it's probably a polite thing, uh, but it's, it's Justice Germain of the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. Uh, <laughs> yes. The Chamber's judge awarded costs to Alberta Health Services payable to the Palowskis jointly in the amount of $15,733.50. Um, so the Palowskis were ordered to pay Alberta Health Services $15,733. I don't know if they got around to paying it or not, but now it says that co- that costs award is set aside and the Palowskis are awarded their costs payable by Alberta Health Services in the proceedings below and in this court, calculated on the same basis. So Alberta Health Services has to pay $15,733.50 to the Palowskis, plus the Alberta Health Services will have to pay costs in the Alberta Court of Appeal. I don't know. I would venture a guess it'll be less than $15,000. I don't know, but it could be two, four, six, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for the Court of Appeal that the uh, Alberta Health Services will have to pay. Thank you, Jason Kenney, for you know <laughs> taxpayers having to fork out all this money and, and all of these unnecessary legal proceedings because of ambiguity in the injunction and because of Alberta Health Services. This is going to have other implications for a potential lawsuit for wrongful arrest that the Palowskis might, and I have... It's pure speculation on my part. I have not talked to them. I have not been retained by them. Uh, but conceivably, uh, they might be getting legal advice right now about whether they could they could sue for wrongful arrest. This also applies to Pastor uh, Tim Stevens. Most listeners will have seen the horrific video from June of, of last year, about a year and a month ago, where with his crying children as the police come to his house to arrest him. They were using this May 6th, Alberta Health Services injunction. It's the very same injunction that now we have the Alberta Court of Appeal ruling that it doesn't even apply to the Palowskis before it was amended on May the 13th, right? So even even the May 6th version, which said that it applied to anybody acting uh, independently or to like effect, even that wording of May 6th was not sufficiently clear as to apply to the Palowskis 
So when we take and this was taken out on on May the 13th, those words were taken out entirely. So it became crystal clear that the injunction applied only to Chris Scott, Glenn Carrot, and Whistlestop. And by the way, those parties have acknowledged uh, there's another part of the ruling where their sentence is reduced, but they've acknowledged that that the order did apply to them. They did violate it. They were in contempt of court, and they've got definitive ruling that the limitations on free speech that the same Justice Germain imposed on Chris Scott and later the Pulowskis. I mean, just absolutely outrageous. Uh, this judge, uh, Justice Germain, told the Pulowskis that if they spoke about lockdowns or vaccine mandates, they had to also say what the government's viewpoint is. And the judge goes on and on, repeats over and over and over again, the majority of medical experts, the majority of experts, the majority of scientists, as if in a free society, <laughs> you know, the, the majority is uh, opinion can legitimately be imposed on everybody else. Like just zero conception of what free speech is about. It's to say, it's the right to say what 99% of people do not want to hear. It's the right to say what 99% of people consider to be false, wrong, immoral. It's the right to speak out that, you know, 1% or even 1% of 1%. And this whole idea that, you know, we have to shut people up because they're uh, disagreeing with so-called experts, to which I asked the question, you know, experts according to whom, right? It's, it's just, anyway, that, that was set aside. But the crucial thing is that, so even the May 6th order, we've got the, the highest court in Alberta saying it did not apply to the Pulowskis, which means it certainly didn't apply to Tim Stevens, who was also arrested. And we had that, you know, horrific... YouTube or or BitChute, whatever, the, the, the video online of, of the arrest where he's getting dragged away from his crying children and spending time in jail. Why? Because of Alberta Health Services with its May the 6th, 2021 order. And it's even worse because, like I said, he was arrested after May the 13th, after the Justice Center had gone to court to make it crystal clear that the order applies uh, exclusively to the whistle stop respondents, Chris Scott and Glenn Carrot only. It does not apply to other people. Even when that was crystal clear, you still had the police and the RCMP and the lawyers for Alberta Health Services condoning and promoting and supporting the arrest of Pastor Tim Stevens, to whom this injunction did not apply. So wrongful arrest, wrongful detention, wrongful jailing, uh, condoned by Alberta Health Services and their lawyers. Shame on Alberta Health Services and the lawyers. For, for the arrest and detention of Pastor Tim Stevens. As I read through this, though, I didn't get the sense that this was a victory for our rights and freedoms. <laughs> that was the problem I had with it. I, at first, I was very elated when I read, you know, the tweet from Ezra Levant who, that went viral because, of course, they were helping Pastor Art and funding his uh, defense to some extent. And... Uh, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, maybe this is the judicial wedge that we need to get, you know, our rights reinstated in the courts, or at least have the courts recognize them. And then I read the ruling and it was like, well, no, this is basically clarifying what an injunction is. And this particular injunction, not not a victory for our charter rights and freedoms. It's important to clarify this is a victory for freedom because it clarifies that an injunction is a very serious remedy. You know, contrary to Alberta Health Services, which kind of tosses it around like it's it's some uh, you know whatever some some trivial thing. 
so to, to have a court reiterate that an injunction applies narrowly only to the named parties, and there must be clarity. And if it is to apply to the public at large, it must be very, very clear language. So it's abundantly obvious for all members of the public that they're not to, you know, whatever, uh, interfere with logging operations on a you know particular location or, or what have you. Now, no, you're right. I mean, the, uh, the court makes the assertion, for example, in paragraph three, that as of May 2021, more than 2,100 Albertans had died due to COVID-19. Well, that, that's simply not true. And the Alberta Health Services data tells us that that when you've got Alberta Health Services telling us, so government data saying that 97% of people dying with COVID had one or two or three serious health conditions, you know, emphysema, heart disease, cancer, what have you, to assert that the 2,100 Albertans dying with COVID, that they died due to COVID. I mean, that's just not factual. And then it says hospital resources were strained. Well, yeah, we've got a really stupid government monopoly healthcare system that's completely dysfunctional uh, because we as Canadians are too arrogant to learn from the French, the Germans, the Japanese, the Australians, uh, like every country in the world has more value for money. We insist on a government monopoly. So to pretend that hospital resources are strained because of COVID, simply not true. Uh, oh, no, of course. There was a story out of BC uh, just the other day about a poor woman that died after waiting on a stretcher in a hallway for like two days, you know, because of uh, the problems with the healthcare system. We're not in the, well, I mean, I suppose the pandemic is technically going, but we're not being overwhelmed with COVID patients now. And guess what? The hospital systems throughout the country are under strain. Yeah. That's what they're complaining about, so... You know, we had a very sad court ruling. Uh, my condolences to the Canadian Constitution Foundation and to all the plaintiffs. Uh, BC Court of Appeal ruling. Um, I don't have the name in front of me, but this was a uh, Dr. Brian Day healthcare uh, a challenge to the healthcare monopoly in British Columbia, seeking to expand the 2005 Supreme Court of Canada judgment in Shauli versus Quebec, and the. Dr. Brian Day with Camby Clinic, and they had a number of individual plaintiffs. One of them was a young man who urgently needed surgery. And the doctor said, if you don't get the surgery soon, meaning you know within days, maybe a week or two or three, maybe a month at most, if you don't get this surgery soon, you're going to have permanent health damage. Young man paralyzed for life uh, because of delays in the granting of surgery caused by government's healthcare monopoly because it's illegal for people to to purchase private health insurance. It's effectively illegal to pay for your own health care for any service that is included with the government's health care monopoly. So if uh, orthopedic surgery, if that's part of the government monopoly, it's illegal to purchase your own health care insurance to insure against, to, to, to get access, insurance paid access to orthopedic surgery in a timely fashion. Same thing for cancer, same thing for anything covered by the government's health monopoly. And so in BC, we had this young man paralyzed for life, I guess that uh, did not provoke compassion in the court. And they upheld uh, first at the trial level. And now again, the BC Court of Appeal upheld the uh, government health care monopoly. 
it would not surprise me if they plan to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But, you know, going back to this Alberta Court of Appeal ruling, so they say hospital resources were strained, leading to the cancellation of surgeries and concerns that other medical care might have to be triaged if the hospitalizations continued to rise. I mean, again, that's just not factual. There's a lot of claimed uh, government propaganda about the hospitals being overwhelmed. The government's own data, which the Justice Center has tracked and which is on our website, the government's own data says that at many times when the government was issuing these terrifying news releases about overwhelmed hospitals, the hospitals were not overwhelmed. And this has been a problem for decades. It didn't start with COVID. And yet you have the court, you know, the court saying more than 2,100 Albertans had died due to COVID-19. Hospital resources were strained, leading to the cancellation of surgeries. Anyway, these facts were not litigated before the court. So, you know, in a way, it's not like the court is going contrary to, you know, to the evidence before it. However, it's disconcerting that you can see that these judges just buy into and accept as truth the government's narrative when uh, this stuff is it's just false. Right. Well, I think it's put in there to emphasize the seriousness of the application, ex-party application for the injunction, right? Oh, this was such a terrible situation, and these people were being terrible people for violating uh, the orders, and therefore the ex-party injunction was granted because they're terrible people, and this was a terrible situation. So I think that was the purpose of it being in there. Again, but these these comments are obiter. Obiter comments are comments in a court judgment that are not germane to the main point. The main point here, or one of the main points, uh, it, what is the court case actually about? It's about did this uh, May 6, 2021 Alberta Health Services injunction, did it apply properly to the Pulowskis? And the Alberta Court of Appeal has said, no, it did not apply to the Pulowskis, because it lacked sufficient clarity. So that's the issue they're deciding on. Anything else is obiter. So other judges cannot look to these claims in paragraph three and say, well, it's a finding of fact by the Alberta Court of Appeal that you know 2,100 people had died due to COVID as opposed to dying with COVID, which is very different because you know prior to 2020, old people did die. Uh, people did die prior to 2020. So yeah, it's it's obiter comments, but it it's still it's it's disappointing that the uh, the court seems to have really bought into and and still buys into the government narrative. Right. Well, that's why I said when I read this, I was deflated somewhat because you know it wasn't the victory for uh, well, I say constitutional freedoms that uh, we of course, support here at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. It appeared to be just technical ruling with the same background as all the other rulings. So it wasn't the the wedge that I was hoping it would be. Still, a victory is a victory. So I guess I have uh, really nothing to complain about, except everything that I complain about. So other news, um, the Justice Centre is going to court on the vaccine passport in Ontario on Tuesday, July the 26th, two-day hearing, July 26th and and, um, Wednesday, July 27th. And this is the big court action against vaccine passports that was launched in September of um, 
of 2021 by the Justice Center. No. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Well, I did want to mention that uh, the cat did get let out of the bag in that Brian Peckford's speech at the Vancouver dinner did get printed in True North. Now, I know that uh, there's another dinner coming up, and I think Brian Peckford is now going to be the keynote speaker at that. Uh, But you can read his speech from Vancouver on the True North website uh, under the heading, A Magna Carta for Canada. And it's a bit of a barn burner. Uh, Is that how you recall it? Yes, I was privileged to be uh, at the George Jonas Freedom Award Dinner in Vancouver on July 13th. And Brian Peckford was our keynote speaker. And I'm delighted to say that he will also be our keynote speaker in Calgary. And of course, you can always read good things online, but it's special to be in the same room with one of the living signatories of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And his speech in Calgary on uh, Thursday, August 11th, it will probably be similar, uh, might be a bit different, but it's going to be a fun event. It's a celebration of freedom. We're going to have several Justice Centre lawyers present, including staff lawyers and uh, uh, outside counsel. I think uh, Keith uh, Wilson is planning to attend. Uh, He was uh, a counsel for the truckers in Ottawa in February, along with uh, Eva Chipiak, who's also coming to the dinner from Edmonton. And um, so I'm, I'm expecting a good half dozen Justice Center lawyers and outside counsel who have been retained by the Justice Center. And a lot of our staff uh, people will be able to meet and shake hands with. Uh, and I think, Kevin Steele, are you coming to the dinner August the 11th in Calgary? Well, I was waiting for you to say something. Actually, that's the first I've heard anybody say anything about me being at the dinner. Well, I'll have to get back to you on that. Uh, All right. Well, let everybody know. Let everybody know next week. (laughs) Okay, for sure. I wouldn't mind hearing that exact same speech that I read online in the True North. Uh, I wouldn't mind hearing that live because, you know, obviously the guy has lost none of his fire. This was one for the ages, you know, it was, uh, it was top-notch stuff, and I wish we could read it or play a tape of it, but we're not going to do that until after the Calgary dinner, of course, now. So, uh, in other news, I know that we're uh, not talking about uh, Tamara Leach, but I do want to point out that there was a great interview with a lawyer, Ari Goldkind, in True North uh, by uh, Rupa Subramanya. And they did a great discussion about that case, and he brings an outside perspective to this. Someone who doesn't support or didn't support the convoy at all, but definitely saw the injustice of the uh, court hearings and had some very harsh words for, let's say, everyone involved in the uh, bail hearing that was on the government side of it. And uh, that's definitely worth uh, taking a look at the whole thing. So I hope you'll add that to the podcast uh, with the links. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, and one other story I want to include with my links. Yeah, I remember last week I'd mentioned that a family member of mine uh, was having trouble finding a a doctor. Uh, Coincidentally, or less than coincidentally, a story appeared in the CBC on the 22nd titled, Their Family Doctor is Leaving BC. Other Physicians among her orphaned patients. So even doctors in BC now are having trouble 
finding doctors for themselves. That's how bad it's getting, yeah. And the CBC is acknowledging it, doing a story about it. Uh, yeah, you know that uh, they're having some trouble there. So, But no doubt the CBC will be promoting the opinion that the solution to the problem is more money, uh, ignoring the fact. Isn't it always? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's that's the CBC for you. It's, it's advocating for more government and more more spending of tax dollars and that's the solution to everything well when you look at the healthcare spending how, how it's grown it used to be in the 60s uh, healthcare was you know a fifth of the budget and then it became 25% and then it became 30% 35% 40% 45% there are now provinces in Canada where the healthcare is 50% of the government's spending on government programs and so uh, if we don't change the system itself, which is an inefficient, unaccountable government monopoly, where the government is the funder, the government is the provider, and the government is the evaluator who judges <laughs> whether it's doing a good job or not. I mean, imagine a government monopoly on restaurants. So you get yeah. one government-run restaurant chain, and they're all unionized. And it's very expensive because if the restaurant needs a uh, light bulb changed, they got to call the unionized electrician who's going to charge $250 to come in there and change one light bulb because you can't, everything's unionized, right? So you can't have yeah. somebody, uh, some able-bodied person or even like a short person with a stepladder or whatever. Like you can't just have a human being go up there and change the light bulb. You got to pay $250 to the electrician, right? That's how things work when they're completely unionized. And I'm not against unions. I'm not against people earning oh, a not. lot of money. I am against this uh, insane, fanatical division uh, of labor to the point where it becomes so impractical that you cannot change a light bulb uh, without charging $250 to taxpayers for doing so. This is how healthcare works. I know somebody on the inside who says that in March, when it's March fever and it's the end of the fiscal year, and somebody comes along and says, hey, you need a new computer? Well, no, not really. Actually, my computer's fine. Okay, well, you're getting a new computer because we got to spend our budget. You know, this mm. is this is how government spends. You have the March Madness where they spend money on, on anything necessary or not. You know, so monopolies are inherently inefficient. Uh, they're unaccountable. What incentive do you have to uh, to spend money efficiently and to provide high quality service when your customer is forced to pay you and they can't go anywhere else, right? So without competition, there is no accountability. This is the problem with uh, government monopoly over healthcare. And we've had these problems for decades and they're not going to get any better because we're too arrogant to learn from the United Kingdom and France and Germany and Italy and Spain and Sweden and Japan and Singapore and every country in the world uh, does not have government monopoly over healthcare. And so what you have in other countries is you have a system, a healthcare system that is accessible for all people, regardless of income, without the wait times and with far more bang for the buck uh, in terms of the um, amount of money that, that healthcare costs. Uh, Canada's got one of the highest per person healthcare spendings in the world. And yet on our outcomes, when it comes to 
waiting times for surgery, waiting times to see a specialist. When it comes to the number of doctors per capita, the number of nurses per capita, the number of hospital beds available, you know, why do we have an alleged shortage of hospital beds during COVID when that's not the it's not a problem in Alabama, one of the poorer states in the U.S. Well, you know, Florida has uh, seven times as many beds per capita as Alberta. So we've got a rotten healthcare system. It has nothing to do with COVID. And um, it, it is a constitutional issue because the Supreme Court of Canada said in 2005 in Shaouli that the government healthcare monopoly is a violation of our Charter Section 7 right to life, liberty, and security of the person. I don't know whether we mentioned it, but, you know, Alberta dropped its VAX mandate for uh, nurses and healthcare workers. I don't know whether that uh, is getting the publicity it deserves, especially, you know, because they're not doing that in BC. So that actually was one of the bright lights uh, that happened. When did that happen? Just in the past week. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I sent it out to somebody and... uh, I have to ask the question, though. I mean, does it mm-hmm. does it even matter anymore now? Now that we've had the Delta variant and the Omicron variant, why why would anybody still want to get this older vaccine for uh, the original variant? Or are the new vaccines supposedly for for Delta and Omicron? I mean, it just makes no sense. Right, July nineteenth. That's when that story came out, and <laughs> I just found it in my. Uh like texting here. But um, yeah, what is the point? Yeah, I know they're not giving us a guarantee on that. I know that they've got the fourth booster scheduled. So I'm, and I don't think the mandates cover the boosters. So I'm a bit confused by this. I mean, it's obviously, you know, there's people power tripping. There's, there's uh, might be other issues involved. You know, we know that in the States there's money involved. Nobody really talks about that here, but uh, I think it's a, it's a topic that's going to come up more and more as it, it appears more and more unreasonable. And I think we're at something like 57% of Canadians are not going to get a booster or 57% of the people that have received one or two shots will not get a booster. So, I mean, that's not going to be a very good uptake for that. It's going to become an issue. Well, I hope they'll stick to their guns. I personally know people that have been uh, injected twice with uh, with the new COVID vaccine and are saying that that's it. I'm not doing a third yeah. or a fourth. When the government was selling this to the public in 2021, and I think the rollout was in May and June for the most part, when the government was selling this, it was saying two shots and we're going to have herd immunity. We can put this all behind us. And a lot of people trusted the government and they got their two shots and uh, lo and behold, uh, they're not effective because the, whatever protection is afforded just wears off after after six or nine months. And herd immunity was not achieved. And this uh, these COVID shots did not stop the spread of Delta. They did not stop the spread of Omicron. And now in New Zealand, you know, everybody, the very high vaccination rates and even Gibraltar and Israel and Ireland, all these highly vaccinated places, the virus was was still spreading. How about Joe Biden? You didn't say Joe Biden. I thought you might say Joe Biden. He got COVID. And of course, he's been, I think, double vaxxed and double boosted. So Wow. Speaking of unreasonable, um, we are looking, the Justice Center is is hearing stories from people getting $17,000 fines or $5,000 fines or whatever for not using the Arrive Can app. Now here oh, is that's a mess. Here is yeah. a creeping um, 
we're going to be releasing a paper within uh, within the next week or two on the dangers of the communist Chinese social credit system where the government tracks all of the citizens and there's facial recognition uh, software, there's cameras everywhere, there's apps. The government knows who you are, what you're posting on social media. And so you have a social credit, not to be confused with the uh, former BC social credit government uh, that that uh, governed most of the time from 1952 to 1991, or the Alberta social credit government from 1935 to 1971, but a uh, social credit in, in the sense of you're getting these social credits for positive behavior, like praising the government. Now, the ArriveCan app is creepy because you have the government not accepting. It would be one thing, okay, if the government said, we want proof that you've been double vaccinated. Uh, and if you're not, then you've got to quarantine at home for two weeks. Now, I would challenge that as being utterly unscientific and an unjustified violation to, to be under house arrest when there's just no scientific or medical basis for treating uh, people differently uh, who did not get the shots because, you know, the shots don't stop. They don't stop the spread. But putting that aside for a minute. Okay, so let's just assume for a moment that that this is a legitimate scientific medical requirement that uh, people without the shots uh, have to quarantine at home for two weeks and people who got the two injections do not have to quarantine at home for two weeks. Let's assume for a moment that that's okay. The next question is, why is it not sufficient for somebody to show a QR code on a piece of paper that the scanner will link to their medical account. Why do they need to purchase a cell phone and have the ArriveCan app on their phone? Why can they not return with their passport and just the uh, medical documents that they got the two COVID shots? So this is very creepy because, and, and I think the reason is quite simple. It's because if you've got the ArriveCan app on, on your phone, the government can track your whereabouts. And they're also conditioning, training people, training citizens to accept that they are required to have the cell phone to use the cell phone. So currently, if- And bank on the cell phone so they can turn off your bank account if they don't like you. Uh, that as well. Yeah. So because currently- if you are somebody who chooses not to have a cell phone, or maybe you have your reasons for not taking the cell phone with you when you want to travel, okay, maybe you want to leave it at home. I remember three or four years ago, I went on a trip and I wanted, I wanted a truly relaxing holiday and I left my cell phone in Canada and I, I left Canada and, and uh, went to Europe for a brief holiday and you know came back to Canada without my cell phone, but I had my passport. Right, but now, aside from a whole bunch of other issues, I can't even leave Canada without my cell phone because I'm going to need that cell phone when I come back in. You know, so this is really creepy. So we are looking into. We're in discussions with people that got tickets. So if there is a new court action announced uh, in regards to the RiveCan app, uh, do not be surprised because it, it looks like we are heading in that direction. Good. I'm glad you're on it. Great. Okay, I think we can call it into episode 28 of Justice with John Carpe. We covered a lot of territory here. Look forward to speaking to you next week, John. Talk to you next week. Take care, Kevin.